number of years ago, there was this film called A Knight's Tale, and it was starring uh, the late Heath Ledger, who was a great actor. And uh, in this in this film, he is a, he plays this this young peasant named William who wants to be a knight, and uh, he falls in love with Rosalind, this princess. And of course, he's a peasant, and so he. He, uh, he, he, he finds this armor, uh, this knight that had died, and he puts the armor on, and he needs a new name, of course, because he can't be uh, just plain old William. So uh, he's given a new name, and his new name is Ulrich van Lichtenstein. And so Ulrich van Lichtenstein makes it his goal in life to be this you know, great knight and to win Rosalind's heart. And so he's uh, competing in these, in these jousting tournaments, and he gets to this one tournament, and he says to uh, Rosalind, who he's trying to win uh, through the power of his performance and the sheer brilliance of his brawn, uh, he says to Rosalind, he says, I will win this tournament for you. And she turns and she says to him, you win this tournament for yourself. If you truly love me, her voice wasn't quite this low, but no, I, mean, I don't do good Rosalind. If you truly love me, you will lose. And then there's this excellent montage of him sitting on a horse and being pulverized by these, by these knights because he's trying to prove his love. And there's this one scene where one of the, the, one of the guys that was helping him out, uh, you know, bet money on, on the match, and now he's losing all his money because he's, he's taken a fall for, for Rosalind. And he goes up to him and he says, what do you do? And, you know, and, he says, and he figures it out. He says, oh no, you're doing this for love, aren't you? And then William says, oh, I love her, and oh, how I hate her, right? <laughs> it's a great scene. But the point is, he's, he's trying to win her love through his performance. Either way, really. He's, he's trying to win, perform through winning, and perform through losing. Either way, he's trying to prove it. When we come to this book of Ephesians, which is about spiritual growth, maturity, the unity of the church, growing up in Christ... It's a book that's very much about how the Spirit of God, by His grace that saved you, is now propelling a new life through you. But if we read it wrongly, we will very much put on the Ulrich van Lichtenstein lens for the book of Ephesians. And we will assume it's very much about performance, and we will read it very much like the way that we prove our love to God, right, is by winning this tournament in His name, called, you know, moral, Christian, ethical, you know, superior behavior, and that's how we show God how much we love Him. And that's a very wrong way to understand this letter. We're going to read this morning, our text is Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read the first 16 verses. But before I read them, I just want to give you the context for that text, so we can read it rightly. And for those of you that haven't been with us as we've been marching through Ephesians, very quickly I want to say this. That in chapter 1, we see that the Father planned our adoption by his grace. And in chapter 2, we see that the Son accomplished that adoption by his grace, by his, by his perfect life and his atoning death and his divine resurrection. In chapter 3, we see that the Holy Spirit is now applying everything that that adoption means, now that we've been adopted into a new family, the Spirit is applying that in you by his grace. And so from chapters 1 through 3, we see this radical scandalous saving grace. It is a tidal wave of blessing and favor coming to you, to your heart, to your life. And now as we come to chapter 4, there's a very distinct shift in the letter. 
that doesn't do away with any of that grace. It actually reveals that that's the grace and that sanctifying scandalous grace is also the very same empowering, reforming, renovating, sanctifying grace that empowers the life from chapters 4 through 6. And now we come to Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. As we expound Paul's text and kind of dive into that beautiful letter and that encouragement, we're going we're gonna to ask this text, text some questions. Um, and those questions come from kind of what Paul is getting at. There's three things we're going to break out um, that we're going to see this morning, how God's grace is so beautiful for you and why it matters for you today. So here's the sermon in a sentence. God's grace empowers our calling and it reforms our character so that from conviction we live in unity. That's what God's big plan is. That's what he's up to. He's drawing a family to himself. And so that saving grace that saved you, that's the same grace that's now empowering your calling and reforming your character so that from conviction you live in beautiful love and unity. So first of all, how does God's grace empower our calling? Well, it compels us as you read through that text and you read it, what's Paul asking the Ephesians to do? And, and by extension, what, are, what, is, what is God asking us to do? It, the grace of God is empowering our calling because it is calling us to break down the walls around our heart, the idolatrous walls labeled me first. It's where this is going. This is what Paul is calling for them to do. The letter makes a huge shift. And, and so uh, in verses 1 to 3, we see that God exonerated us from our old life by his rescuing grace, but now he's empowering our new life by his renewing grace. And 
So the Christian life, if you were to kind of, if I was to use an analogy to describe what, when Paul shifts his letter, he's not saying, I hope you really celebrated chapters 1 through 3, grace, yay! Now grab an oar and start rowing. That's not what's happening. He's actually saying, I hope you understand this beautiful saving grace, yay! Now get on the sailboat and exercise all of these beautiful love and good works for one another, but you're not actually propelling anything. You're on a sailboat. It's not a rowboat. The Spirit of God, the power of His Spirit, is propelling and moving this new life that you've been called into. You've been saved from something for something, and this is kind of what He gives us. So there's this phrase He uses. He says, walk worthy. Now when we, if you just pick up your Bible and you start in chapter 4, verse 1, and the first thing you see is, walk worthy of the calling of which you've been called. Walk worthy. The things that we do in this life echo throughout all eternity. That's how you're going to read that. Because you're North American and you're a sinner. <laughs> That's how I'll read it, because I'm North American and I'm a sinner. Very much in need of this grace where you say, wait a minute, what is this walking worthy of a calling? In the context of if you go home and say, what's Paul's sermon? You know, what's it? i got to check that out. Do it. Read the first four, verses, four chapters all together, and you're going to find that when he says walk worthy, it's, it's not a divine guilt trip. It's a divine invitation. It's a divine invitation to live this empowered life that Christ has actually given to you, that the Spirit is now actually working in you. It's not a divine guilt trip at all. It's this, he, Paul is saying, live according to who you are now. Let's go back to that uh, baptism this morning. It was so beautiful. As I'm holding Navy, this sleeping infant, and as she is baptized by God's grace, and her eyes popped open in my arms, this is, that's a picture of you. Dead in your sin, you don't have a shot, God saves you from, being, from living your whole life in the bondage of your sin, these patterns that cause you to build idolatrous walls around your heart that say, me first, and instead of worshiping God and glorifying him and loving your neighbor, you really go through life worshiping yourself first. You've been saved from that by the saving grace of God. All the judgment for your sin was poured on Christ. It's a done deal. Your eyes pop open, and now he says, hey, welcome to the family. You've been asleep, you've been dead, you're in a new family now, and now you can graciously live, empowered by the Spirit of God, into a new life that you were actually destined for from the beginning. We will struggle with our sin forever to the day we die. We, we, none of us are going to be perfected and matured in this life. We, we will always struggle with our sin, and sometimes we will lose that struggle with our sin. But the truth remains that we've been saved from being slaves to the sin. The resurrection power of Christ is in you, and so we can very confidently pray, Oh God, would you change this heart? I have sinful patterns in my life. I have friends that are close to me that will point, those, point their finger at my sin. And they do. And I've had, I've had some recent conversations about it. And you know how frustrating it is because part of me, part of me doesn't even want to acknowledge it and see that, it's, that I'm actually that dark and that sinful and that immature. And part of me wants to be like, no, no, I'm way past that now. But there's that struggle is real. That struggle is there. But... I'm not a slave to my sin. So I can't just say to my wife and my children and you, deal with it. I'm a recovering narcissist. That's true, I am a recovering narcissist. But I'm, I'm not a slave to that. But, but I also can't roll my sleeves up and go, so the sermon today is transform yourself, here's how. Because if I point you to just keep digging deep down in there, to just dig a li little deeper, guys, and just transform... You're, no. Because if you look deep inside your heart, it's not good. 
We have to look outside and live our life on our knees, which is a beautiful thing, because then we don't judge the people that are sitting next to us, because we're like, hey, look, I'm on my own sanctification journey, so mind your own sanctification. So now we can live in beautiful compassion and not comparison. So Paul calls us. This is how it empowers our calling. Now, how does, the, how does this um, calling look? It does mean vocation, and we talked about that last week in terms of um, not your vocation in terms of your career. If you're a student here, you discover your gifts, you discover your abilities, you go and you live to God's glory in whatever field of uh, vocation that you choose, and that's beautiful. And there's not some sort of a hierarchy, like if you do church work, that's more important than doing you know, work outside. That's ridiculous. That's not true. So you live to God's glory in everything that you're doing. Um, yet, God gave all of us a new calling, and it's the same calling, which is a calling to love share his gospel and to be be loving and gracious think about think about vocation some of you are on call some of you are doctors you're on call some of you are, have other occupations and you're on call if you're if you're a business owner you're kind of always on call right if you're a pastor i'm on call many of you have called me or emailed me or texted me late at night because something's been happening here i don't get to just pick up my phone and look at that and be like oh gosh that that sounds terrible well i'll see them on sunday you're on you're on call and the call to love means your benefit, my expense. That's what on call means. So when Paul says, walk worthy to the calling of which you've been called, he's saying, hey guys, um, we're all on call now to be loving. We're all on call now to care and love one another. But you can't do that on your own because you don't want to do that on your own because who, there's two different attitudes to being on call. If somebody says, hey, you're on call this weekend, people, when people get, get, get given the, the on call cell phone, they're not like, yay. You know, it's me, you know, because you never get called, you know, at a time that's preferable. If you've ever worked at a company where if an alarm goes off, they have a hierarchy and you're like, please don't call my cell phone. Please don't call my cell phone because I don't want to be the one that has to get out of bed and go and make sure that, you know, everything's okay at the facility. When you're on call, you don't want to be on call. But the grace that saved you is reforming you. So you're good with being on call. You're good with loving people. Because it's, it's 100% of the time going to be inconvenient. And so in and of ourselves, there's no way, there's no, there's no words I could say standing up here to be like, so church, the moral of the sermon is love each other more and be more willing to sacrifice your time, your resource, and your... Like, there's no words I could possibly say that would reform your heart to want to do that. I could say a lot of very helpful things that would probably make you manage your behavior better, but it's only this sanctifying, saving grace that changes this sinful heart and yours. So we would walk worthy of this divine invitation, walk worthy, inviting us to live these loving lives. So how does, how does this reforming of our character look? It looks the same, the same as the, the, this empowering. It's God reorienting our misplaced self-love by putting our misplaced self-love behind Christ and behind others. Think of, the, think of the call, and then think of the culture of Ephesus. I'll explain it for you. The call, Paul says, hey, you're called to, and I'll reread the words for you, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another's burdens and love. That's the call. Now let's think about the culture of ancient Gre- the Greco-Roman world. When, if you go down to the University of Waterloo and go, I'd like to get a book on uh, ancient uh, Greece and Rome, you're not going to pick up that book and read, the, the Greco-Roman world in the first century was humble, gentle, bearing with... 
Like, the, what Paul is calling Ephesus to is the opposite of the culture. The, the first world Greco-Roman culture was not humble. It was about pride. It was not about suffering. It was about glory. It wasn't about bearing one another's burdens. It was about survival of the fittest. I mean, there were was, there was, there was cities in Rome that they inspected the young babies, and if they didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't look like we're going to grow up to be very strong, they threw them away. And we're kind of in a modern Rome today. Again. And so what Paul calls them to is actually the opposite of... And I, I identify with that. I don't know if you do. But I, but I would love to stand up here and say, you know, church, over the years I've become a humble, gentle, loving, bearing with that. And, you know, and, and, and there, are, there are days and moments when I am those things, praise Jesus. But I'm capable of the opposite, and I do the opposite. And so do you. I have good news and bad news. See, the bad news is the call to humility and love and bearing one another's burdens and, and this gentleness is not like, try your best this week. The call is, this marks us, defines us, this is who we are, perpetually and always. That's the bad news. That's the standard of God's law. I'm not doing it. You're not doing it. Here's, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is, Christ was perfectly humble for you. Christ was perfectly gentle for you. Christ was perfectly bearing all of our burdens. Christ fulfilled the law for you. So there's nothing left for you to do to earn chapters 1 to 3. It's finished. You're invited into a new life now whereby we say, oh God, would you reform this heart? Would you help me break down these walls that are labeled me first? Would you help me break down the walls that, that, that when I'm inconvenienced and I'm just like, you know, uh, I would like to, you know, extend love and care for you in this moment and your suffering, but I need to take a me day. Would you help me? Would you help me, God? Because in and of myself, I don't want to do that. You know, I just, I started coaching baseball this week and, uh, and uh, I'm, standing, I'm standing there on third and I'm coaching third base and our kids are up. And, you know, I've got a teenage umpire. The, the calls are not that great. It's Little League Baseball. Get over it. It's not a big deal. But internally, my volcano's going off because everything is a big deal. You know, I, I said to the parents and the kids the first day, I said, some coaches say winning's not important. I said, that's ridiculous. You don't sign up to not win. I said, now other coaches say, you know, that it's only important, you know, that uh, it's all about having fun. I said, well, that's also true. I said, look, we've got to land somewhere in the middle here. And I had this big talk with them. I'm like, um, this isn't the major leagues. The Blue Jays aren't scouting your kids. We're going to have fun. We're not going to connect their identity performance. I preached a little sermon for the parents, you know, and they said, I'm not going to do that. I said, but the kids aren't here to just run around and be ridiculous. We're going to try. So I'm standing at the plate. You'd think that, you know, the preacher who's always preaching about the sanctifying grace of God would be very sanctified. But anyways, as the story continues, um, my son is up to the plate. And Nigel's fouling off these balls, fouling off these balls, fouling off these balls. He's, you know, he's, got a, he's, he's waiting for his pitch. And the pitch comes in, and the pitch is over his head, and he ducks. And the teenage umpire goes, strike three, the batter's out. <laughs> now, I turned around to the parents who were all yelling things, because this is how little league sports are. And I turned around to them and I smiled and I said, hmm. and they're all looking at me, they're waiting for this big reaction. And I just said to the parents, I said, I just want you all to know that everything that you're seeing right now is the exact opposite what's going on inside my heart. And they all just laughed and I just turned around. That was all I said. I said, because we can manage our behavior, but it's only the spirit. I managed my behavior yesterday. The parents could go home and say, you know, Paul is so patient. No, I'm not. I just managed my behavior so that everybody, you know, because who wants the headlines, you know, 
Pastor of KW Redeemer punches out teenage umpire. Page 16. Actually, that would be great advertising for the... Okay, pray for me. Anyways. So, it's... What I'm saying, what Paul is saying is this, all of the, this, this calling that you've been called to, it's spirit wrought. It's not self-generated. So you can read this and be encouraged because this isn't just a prescription for what you're supposed to do, though it is. Deeper than that, it's a description of who you actually are. Paul is saying to Ephesus, I know your culture says you should be proud and this and this and this, but I'm, you've been called now to this. I know it's the opposite of who you are. I know it's the opposite of what's going on in your heart. But don't worry. You don't have to self-generate this transformation. You don't have to, like, reach deep down and, you know, work a little harder this week. You can't do that. You can manage your behavior, though, which is not a bad thing in the sense that it's very helpful for everybody around you. But at the end of the day, you and I, we got to hit our knees and be like, oh, God, change this sinful heart because I'm just managing my behavior. I need your sanctifying grace. I'm still in this struggle with my sin. And the beauty of the gospel is it, it allows us to be emotion, it allows us to be honest about our sin. We don't have to downplay our sin with each other. We don't have a culture where we don't have to have a culture where you come into Redeemer and you put your, you know, too blessed to be stressed face on, and everybody and you know, we're having coffee after we're hanging out, and your week was a bombshell, and somebody comes up and goes, Hey, how are you doing? You know, and, and you're like, bless God. You know, you don't have to, it's okay. You know, I mean you can be like, well, you know, this was a rough one. Man, let's, let's, let's share in one another. The Spirit reforms our hearts so that we're on call in that way. Otherwise, what will happen is you can be like, you know what? i got enough drama in my own life. I don't need to hear anybody else's. I don't need to import your drama into my life. So I'm just not going to talk to any of you. I'm just going to isolate myself. I'm going to come here. I'm going to listen to the sermon. But I really don't want to get into the end of your life because that's where the mess is. That's where the shiza hits the fan. Well, i got news for you. The beauty of what we've been called into is not just this, hey, grace saved you, good luck with that. It's actually God is up to doing this beautiful thing uh, in our hearts. And then, so that's this, that's this beautiful shift in the letter. So how do we live in this unity? So if God's grace is empowering our calling and it, he's reforming our character, and it's what he's up to, it's what he's doing. Again, like I said, you've got to read the whole, the whole letter for it to make sense. Otherwise, if you just pick it up here, it sounds like if I'm humble, if I'm gentle, if I'm loving, if I'm patient, then God will bless me, then God will give me favor, then God will accept me, then God will be pleased with me. No, that's not what Paul is advocating for. He's saying because you're blessed, because you're accepted, because God is pleased with you in Christ, because it's done, therefore you're free. You're free now to live this way. So how do we live in this unity? Well, the church is actually unified around the truth of the gospel. And that produces loving and caring and gracious community. The church isn't actually unified around community. That's the way we think about it, though. We say, well, live in unity. Great. That means have great relationships. It does, but that's not actually the foundation. The relationships are a byproduct of the foundation. Let me blow this out and explain why this is true. In verse 6, Paul says... There is one God and Father over all, through all, in all, by your Spirit. See, and then he, he, he describes seven things that God makes, which is the foundation of our unity. We make relationships. After the service, you go, you grab a coffee, you talk with people, you have them over for lunch, you know, whatever. You know, you, you guys make relationships. And that's a beautiful, loving, and good thing. But 
the foundation for the unity is not actually just those relationships. Paul gives us this. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father over all. He goes, there's your unity, folks. You gather around that. So keeping the unity and all this conversation about that, of course it impacts our relationships, no doubt. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But that's not the foundation. The foundation is if you're going to keep the unity, you've got to keep that, those things, the gospel. Remember, he's preaching in, in Ephesus where they've got this Artemis cult. It was, it was four times the size of the Parthenon. It was the, one of the wonders of the ancient world. They've got all of these people worshiping Artemis. Droves of them get saved. You can read all of this in Acts 19 or you can study it in church history. Droves of them get saved. They come into the church. Now there's all these different ideas in the church. And there's all these different philosophies and these different lenses for understanding the scripture. So Paul's like, we need unity. And the unity is not just like, you're okay, I'm okay, you're friend, I'm friend. Hey, let's just stay away from the controversial issues because after all, we got to be in unity. we got to keep the unity. I'm sorry, that's not what Paul's after. Those unifying relationships are gracious and loving and beautiful and good and we enjoy them, but they're around, they have to be around something fundamentally deeper. Right? That's, that's what community is really kind of based in. Let me read you something. It's really amazing. W.A. Criswell was a Baptist theologian and an expository teacher, and he was writing about a visit to post-war Germany in 1947. Here's what he gives us. The church building in Munich was destroyed. The people were scattered. The remnant congregation was mostly refugees. They met underground by the light of a coal lamp. They were worshiping God in various languages. Strangers finding comfort in the midst of devastation I returned in 1950 and found that the group had built a church building. Now, Chriswell took home the German believer's practice of joining hands at the Lord's Supper and singing, Blessed be the tie that binds. And he recalls especially this stanza, We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. Post-war Germany, they don't even speak the same language. They're gathered together underground around a coal lamp, and three years later, they built a church building, and they're worshiping together. The unity was not just the, the camaraderie. They gathered around one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father overall, and the depth of that kept them in this beautiful... Uh, made those relationships flourish. So I'm not downplaying how important relationships are, they're essential. I'm reordering them to see why they're essential and what they're actually built on. Gospel truth produces loving relationships. Loving relationships do not produce gospel truth. That's why Paul orders it that way. And so what Paul is trying to preserve in Ephesus, which is what I'm trying to preserve today in a polytheistic, multi- uh, a kind of faceted multiplicity of worldviews, pluralistic world, is that unity around the gospel. So when we receive the offering, and you hear me say the words, we want to preserve the gospel in the city. I'm talking about the faithful preaching of the scriptures and of Christ, so that you and your children and your grandchildren and your great and great and great one, we're all long, long gone, but the unity is kept. Not because everybody's buddies and they go golfing together or they, you know, you, you play hockey, you coach. That is beautiful stuff, important, essential things. Foundation. Christ alone. This is what he's rallying around. And this is what he's advocating for. So our families and our friends 
are always to be loved, always to be cherished, always to be respected, because they're beautiful and they're important, but our families and our friends are not why we gather. My vision, my leadership, my preaching gift is helpful for the church. It's not the basis of the church, and it's not why we gather. If, 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 you're, if I'm rallying everybody to me and my vision, my leadership, my whatever, that's not a church, that's a personality cult. And if, if the faithful preaching of the scriptures was set aside just so that everybody could be buddies in Ephesus, Paul would not call that unity. He would call that idolatry. So he's saying, there's, so the church is to be a loving community where we love each other, and we love our city, and we serve our city, and the re, what makes us a loving community is that we can love everybody who's not in the community. We can actually love those who don't share our convictions. We can love everybody in the city who actually believes the opposite of what we believe the scriptures teach. That's what makes us a loving community. In a world of tolerance where they say, abandon your conviction or you're a bigot if you don't believe what I believe, we say, no, we reject tolerance. I don't need to adopt your worldview. I don't need to take the cultural lens of Ephesus or KW and allow that for, to filter how I understand God's law. No, 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 no. I'm going to love you and respect you and be charitable toward you, but I'm going to maintain my conviction about what the scripture explicitly teaches and calls for me to do and for how I live and how I raise my children. So the unity is protecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the centrality of Christ, and all that, and all that the scriptures reveal about him. And that's why the apostles and the prophets, the teachers, the evangelists were given. The apostles, of course, were the men who walked with Christ, and they had apostolic authority. Today, people can do the work of apostles, right? Like, I can plant churches and do the work, but I don't have apostolic authority. Nobody does. None of us walk with Christ. I only have authority if I say what the scriptures say. The prophets were those in the Old Testament that predicted. They predicted the Savior. The prophets in the New Testament presented the Savior. The prophets in, all throughout the entire Bible. The gift of prophecy, when it says God gave these gifts to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus is thinking about all these prophets throughout church history, throughout the Old Testament, who pointed, pointed God's people to their sin and their Savior. That's the job of the prophet. Sin and Savior. Sin and Savior. Revelations 19.10 says the spirit of Jesus is the, I'm sorry, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, today, if there's a gift of prophecy operating in the church, which there is today, people with the gift of prophecy, that means, very narrowly, they are speaking of, they are calling the church to their sin and pointing them to their Savior. That's what the gift of prophecy always did. That's what the gift of prophecy continues to do. So you've got apostles and prophets that were kind of these extraordinary gifts, and then you've got these ordinary gifts, guys like me, pastors, preachers, evangelists. And you say, well, that, well how, does that, that, how does that seem fair? Well, the pastors and the preachers and the evangelists all through the New Testament church, all through the book of Acts, all through church history, we didn't walk with Jesus, and we don't have any fresh revelation. We only have illumination on what's been revealed. So we are very ordinary, right? I'm, not, I'm, I'm called because I'm up here, but I'm not special because I'm up here. I'm ordinary. You and I are ordinary. If you're a young person and you want to be a, a pastor and a preacher one day, but you don't want to be ordinary, then don't be a pastor or preacher. Okay, get a talk show. Go into leadership. Uh, do TED Talks. Do something else. But if you want, because it's ordinary, it's ministering grace, teaching of the scriptures to keep the unity. 
in the church. This is the, uh, this is the beauty of what, what gives, which is why Paul flows out of, out of this conversation about unity, and he goes right into the false doctrine thing, right? He's like, hey, guys, God's grace is calling you and empowering you to live with humility and love and bear one another's burdens. And listen, God has given these gifts to the church, the, pro- the apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and, 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 and pastors so that you can have um, the beauty of God's grace preach to you, nourish you, strengthen your spirit. Oh, and by the way, don't be like kids that get tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Why would he do that? Why? Do you see how he's connecting this all together? He's connecting the unity? Because he, Paul is dealing with things at the time. It's like, those are weird ideas. I don't want you tossed around by weird ideas. And the same is true, uh, the same is true today. Uh, Johannes uh, Peter Lange was an 1840s German theologian. He actually influenced Spurgeon quite a bit. And he said this of that phrase when it says uh, the, the crafty doctrine, the, culture, the, the, um, the deceitful schemes of men. He says, literally, you could translate this from the Greek, it's like dice playing. Somebody who throws the dice favorably so the number suits his purpose. It's a methodized system of deceit. And so Paul was de- dealing with that then. And so that's why in you know, Ephesians, Galatians, Timothy, 1 Peter, Titus, Hebrews, Romans, when it talks about, hey, careful of the false teaching, it's because it's a threat. It's a threat to unity. And if you say, well, you know, we don't want to be controversial. After all, we just want to, come on, we're, it's, all roads lead, you know, to Jesus and orthodoxy. So we should just teach anything and embrace everything and don't be controversial. And don't. That's not what Paul said. Because Paul didn't call that unity. He was like, oh boy, this is not good. It's going to, because all of that other weird stuff, it takes your eyes off of the glory of Christ in grace, where the power is, puts it onto something else, namely you or your activity, and now the church becomes burdened and led astray because they're trusting in something smaller than Jesus to give them what only Jesus can do. They're trusting in something smaller than the power of God's grace, hoping it'll do what only God's grace can do. They're trusting in their activity to produce something in their life that only the divine activity can do in their hearts. That's why Paul's like, no, I don't mind being the bad guy. I don't mind saying that's ridiculous. That's not faithful teaching. That's why Paul did that. And so the whole body is joined together in this beautiful love. And so he, he concludes this whole thing, and I close the sermon this morning by saying, in verse 16, he says, the whole body is joined together, working together in love. And he calls for this coming together in this beautiful relationship. Why? Because I can become very academic in isolation, but I can't become loving in isolation. God has given you to me so that in relationship, he's working out my sin as things get exposed in my heart, as I'm kind of engaged in sharing in life with you, and the vice versa with one another. You see, you can find podcasts of guys that can preach, you know, better than me, and you can get uh, uh, CDs of worship music that's better than this, and you can just, in isolation, be like, I got my teaching, and I got my worship, and I wake up, and da, da, da. you're becoming academic. You're not becoming loving. You can't become loving in isolation. Love demands an object. And so that's why at the end of all of this, he's like, hey, and by the way, good luck with that. Love each other. You know, just kidding. He didn't say that. He didn't say good luck with that. He said, you've got the grace and the power of God that's, in power, that's, that's doing this. And so this is the beauty of the gospel, that the church is Christ's instrument for reforming grace to work in our hearts, renewal in the city. God's grace empowers our calling. It reforms our character. So we live in unity. Let's pray.